The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. If I say the word Edwardian then the first thing that may spring to mind is Downton Abbey. Polite conversations and well-mannered ladies sipping delicate cups of tea. But there's another murkier, more complex side to the era. One that the new podcast series, Stephen Fry's Edwardian Secrets, delves into head first. I caught up with the show's writers, Nick Baker and John Wolfe, to find out more about the lesser-known aspects of the era. The first voice you'll hear after mine is John's. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about your new audio series, Stephen Fry's Edwardian Secrets. So the series reveals an unexpected side to the era, doesn't it? It's it's often joyful, it's sometimes disturbing, but it's always colourful and it's frequently quite bizarre. So to start us off, can you give us a flavour of the type of secrets that you're uncovering here? Well, uh, our favourite kind of secret is the secret that you wouldn't ever have found out about had it not been for us. So I would say that the secret ingredient for invisible ink at the very dawn of um, British intelligence is one that we're rather proud of, but won't divulge now. (laughs) It's those kind of little tidbits that are, that are peppered throughout, mm. aren't they? What kind of um, big topics are you tackling here? Well, we kind of tackle a whole range of things. And one of the things we're really interested in is the kind of the sec- history's secrets, the things that we we don't remember or we don't recall or things that people wanted to keep hidden at the time that we sort of uh, unearth. Um, and so we cover all kind of uh, an array of different themes from spying uh, through to the lead up to the First World War, Freud and secret selves, Black Edwardians. We cover technological change. And what we really try and do is focus in on human stories, dramatic intimate stories that give us an insight uh, into this really complex, colourful and slightly bizarre age. And we're interested in penetrating secret worlds. Mm. We think Downton Abbey and Upstairs, Downstairs, two TV series that kind of have put tanks on the lawn in this period, do it rather a disservice. For example, where servants are concerned, the secret life of servants hasn't really surfaced much. And we get right to the heart of that with the typical servant picture, which is not a liveried servant in a great house, but a drudge who are lower middle class 
family can barely afford. And their secrets are very interesting. And the secret Edwardian feelings of the employers is also very interesting. They feared their servants. They worried about their servants. They felt guilty about their servants, but they were perfectly happy to buy them as if they were commodities. Mm. Well, you took the words out of my mouth a bit there with uh, Downton Abbey and afternoon tea on the lawn, because I think for a lot of people, if you say Edwardians, that's the thing that would immediately spring to mind. Where do you think that that idea of the Edwardians as stuffy and polite comes from? Uh, it's a really good question. I mean, I think it's uh, in part because it's rooted in a, a semblance of reality. The Edwardians did like tea on the lawn. There was nice sunny afternoons. Um, and I think it's the way in which the Edwardian era is positioned. We have this sort of great Victorian era and the tragedy of the First World War. And that sort of generated an image of the Edwardians that we're really drawn to, that great Downton Abbey being a, a classic example. And yet what we found in our sort of research is that there's a central paradox in this era, that on the one hand, you do have this swagger, this decadence, this optimism. And yet on the other hand, there's this pessimism, there's this fear, there's this massive change. Um, and so that tea on the lawn, there's an element of truth in it, but we seek to kind of go beyond that and sort of dismantle it. Um, and hopefully we do that. I think we do that, don't we, Nick? And partly, I think that tea on the lawn image is to do with a kind of, the calm before the storm, mm. the happiness before the great sadness, because that summer of 1914 was a, a beautiful summer. Mm. That summer was a beautiful summer. And the other thing about the, that golden age is it ended abruptly. There was no gathering of storm clouds as there was in the run-up to World War II. You know, the brass band jollity of 1914 was really cut short very, very abruptly and very, very frighteningly. So the image of those beautiful summer afternoons always come freighted with the knowledge, in retrospect, that it was going to end suddenly and tragically. I think that's one of the things that's interesting about this period as, as listeners and researchers is to discount what we know uh, about what happens next. Because when we were looking at this story, you know, in the lead up to the First World War, people were having a jolly good time. They were having tea on the lawn. They were drinking with their mates, even in the army. They didn't expect it to happen. And so planting ourselves in that period and looking at what they were actually getting up to, what they were thinking was very different to what we might assume knowing what we know comes next. So as you say, the Edwardians are kind of sandwiched between two big epochs in history, aren't they? We've got World War One on one side and we've got the Victorians on the other. This series follows on from Stephen Fry's Victorian Secrets. And as the title of the first episode acknowledges, this was a hard act to follow. Why weren't the Edwardians just a, a boring postscript to the Victorians? What sets them apart? How did they shake off the shadow of Queen Victoria? I think there are so many factors at play. One is the the man on the throne, uh, King Edward VII. This was a man who grew up in the shadows of an overbearing, very critical mother uh, and rebelled as the Prince of Wales. And when he assumed the throne with his 46-inch waist and his numerous mistresses, he kind of really sets the tone for, for this era. Um, and he was, he loved his food, he loved his women, he had a swagger, uh, and we get a lot of the 
colour and character of this period through Edward. But then I think you've also got those developments in the Ed in the Victorian period, they intensify and they start to change in the Edwardian period too. Um, and whether that's through technology, whether that's through the rise of the working classes, the middle classes, urbanization, te technological advancement, we see these uh, develop. But then the Edwardian era is also its own distinct period. And there are certain things that I think are really important in terms of differentiating it. We've got a greater level of paranoia and pessimism about human blood and the status of Britain in the world. And we can talk about human blood maybe a little bit later. We've got the rise of the welfare state. We've got greater organizations amongst the working classes fighting for change. We've got female suffrage. We've got pan-Africanism. So we've got all these very interesting developments that start to set the Edwardian age apart. But Edward VII as a kingy king is uh, an important one. <laughs> That's my favorite bit uh, in, in a way. And that is the image of King Edward VII going round to his official mistress's house, Mrs. Keppel, and her little daughters treating him like a kind of visiting uncle. But they called him Kingy. They would, <laughs> and I think, you know, they knew he was the king. They must have known what was going on, or, or, or in, in a, in a, through a childish way. And, you know, they were spot on. This is the last of our real monarchy monarchs. Here is a Henry VIII for our times, a greedy, womanizing, self-obsessed man. But that's an unsubtle kind of characterization, really, because the other thing that differentiates the Victorian era from the Edwardian is uncertainty over what the king is going to be like. For example, there was concern at, you know, in, in the early part of the 20th century, that he would be permissive of Jews in high places. And there's, you know, there's a horrible kind of vein of anti-Semitism going through our period. And actually, Edward VII was not only tolerant, but tried hard on a personal level to get his nephew, Tsar Nicholas, the Tsar of all the Russias, to somehow put a, a, an end to, uh, uh, to Jewish persecution. Mm. I, John mentioned some of the anxieties of the age, and I just want to dig a bit deeper into that. So you spoke about anxieties around blood. What do you mean by that? So in a Victorian era, and if you listen to uh, Stephen Fry's Victorian Secrets, um, you'll, you'll hear that a lot of those secrets are manifest in behaviour, the, the things people uh, did in private um, and, and public shame. Edwardian secrets are slightly different. Secrets start to become based at the level of the body. There was a fear that um, the nation was literally uh, declining. You had the Boer War being a prime example, and a whole series of recruits, working class recruits, were deemed to be uh, physically unfit. And people started to worry about the physical state of the nation. But there were also developments in science uh, which were suggesting that the more the lower classes were breeding, 
the more so-called negative traits were being passed down the generations, which were enfeebling the nation. So we have in this period the rise of eugenics. Now, again, you know, we know where that leads. In the Edwardian period, it was a pervasive uh, ideology and idea that you had to restrict the breeding of the working classes, the disreputable elements of society, and encourage the breeding of the well-to-do. Um, so you start having this 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 fear of um, breeding and the way in which people were breeding, how that would in fact in, infect the nation, but also what that said about you as an individual and what that said about your parents, because there was simultaneously this idea of um, traits being passed through the family line. Um, and if you were disabled or you had a mental disability, there was a fear that this was the fault of your parents. And so what we start to see in this period is a concern about the status of people's health, well-being, and a desire to hide that through fear of shame and what that says about your family. And the British were regarded up until this point and slightly beyond as top dog around the world. The British was regarded by themselves as being a race and a superior race. So anything that might damage that was the source of some anxiety. And the aristocracy felt this as well. The aristocracy started to get a bit of a worry because they were being taxed. Their, their farms weren't as profitable. So they were having to do the awful job of marrying wealthy Americans. And, you know, that diluted the blood as well. So there's this anxiety. Can we, under these circumstances, remain top dog, particularly in the latter part of the Edwardian era when the Germans appeared to be matching the British Navy? Matching the British Navy, how dare they? How dare they try? Britain never, never will be slaves and everybody's got a heart of oak and all that. So there's clearly some, some dark undercurrents at play as well here. To pivot slightly, this was also a huge era of change for women. We, of course, had the suffragettes and you revealed that this story is not quite perhaps as polite and um, tea drinking as we might expect. Mm. There is sometimes this sense that, you know, the suffragettes were sort of white middle class women on the picket line demanding change. Um, but what we found, and the, the suffragettes self-described as this, um, certainly from 1913, they described their acts as terrorism. This was a very, very violent, dangerous, deadly struggle for female emancipation. Um, and it was occurring the, the length and breadth uh, of Britain. Um, and at this time, kind of more broadly, you had the rise of female detectives, greater freedom for women, uh, greater levels of disguise and empowerment. Um, but they weren't seeing that in the ballot box. And they got to a point where, you know, they were taking action into their own hands. And we really follow two fascinating stories of two amazing women who sought to take on the system violently, um, in the face of the British establishment, and really sort of uh, disrupt the status quo. So you mentioned their lady detectives. So I need you to tell me more about that. You look at the story of, of a, a very media savvy detective called Maud West. What can you tell us about some of her ex escapades? 
Maud West is a fantastic figure because on the one hand, she's really hungry for publicity because she knows that her detective agency um, will be very successful in this new era. On the other hand, she wants to keep her identity secret. Just to wind back a bit, the reason that Lady Detectives becomes a really big kind of provider of employment is because of the changing status of women. Um, for a start, women now can go to that, that new idea, the department store, and they can go by themselves. And there's a very practical reason why women get this level of independence. It's because they can go out and they know they'll have somewhere to have a wee. <laughs> well, you know, and it's it's so simple. That that's a kind of historical secret in itself. When did women start going out by themselves? As soon as department stores opened with ladies' bathrooms attached. And it also meant that women could start shoplifting, basically. And there was two sorts of shop. There was the organized shoplifter, and then there was the kind of <laughs> Lady Dowager, who saw something and went, yes, I'll have that, and shoved it into her bloomers. Um, but that demanded a high level of an, a, a, a number of store detectives, and the store detectives had to be women. But women were still, particularly women in the lower orders, were still pretty invisible in those days. So another typical way that a lady detective might operate would be in a divorce case where you needed to prove adultery. So a woman, a lady detective posing as a chambermaid could, you know, do the business, could um, provide evidence, whether it was all set up or, or, or whether it wasn't. And then you go back into a slightly more Victorian era, courting between young, young women and young men of quality became far easier as women were let off the leash, which, of course, meant that young men and young women could meet in private. So it's always handy to keep an eye on what's going on. And who better to spy on them than a, a, a virtually invisible woman, you know, sitting in the park feeding the ducks? And do we have any idea what Maud West specifically got up to? She got up to all sorts of things. I mean, she was an amazing uh, disguiser and she would go on these um, investigations into uh, adultery um, and keeping her eye on wayward men, wayward fiancés uh, and getting as much information as she could. She was also great at penetrating household secrets. And at this time, and bringing us back to servants, you know, servants were ubiquitous and they lived in households, the breadth of Britain. And they were privy to numerous secrets, which could then be used for blackmail. And Maud West was often called in to try and uncover which servant was blackmailing which employer. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And no one could have imagined how that would have unfolded with the death of around 10 million during the First World War. Um, but that's kind of where it was heading and no one knew and lots of people were having a good time, disguised, rollerblading, having a good tea on the lawn. Um, it's a fun age as well as one that has this air of 
um, inevitability. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. Um, Maud West also wasn't the only one sneaking about, was she? Because this era also saw the emergence of the Professional Secret Intelligence Service. I mean, I, I say professional, but in your telling, they weren't always very professional, were they? No, I mean, the first thing about the secret intelligence is, I would say, we tend to think fake news is a modern phenomenon. It's absolutely not. You could argue that the Secret Service in the Edwardian era was born because of fake news and fears of spies and infiltration. Um, so it wasn't a great start. And when it was initially established in 1909, they didn't quite know what to do with themselves, the British secret intelligence. Um, the bureaucracy was almost impossible. The budgets were rubbish. Um, and the agents themselves were, were, were clueless um, and amateurish. And so you have this very kind of funny beginning where it was born through paranoia and they weren't quite sure what to do. It was perceived as very un-British. Um, and we follow some rather sort of amusing stories uh, as, that was born of that as a result. There's a very important piece of fiction here written by a now-forgotten author called William LeCue called The Invasion of 1910. It was actually written in 1906. And it showed a German invasion force actually getting into East Anglia via Beckles in Norfolk and marching towards London. And uh, this was serialised in the Daily Mail. And this is an era when people were much less savvy, media savvy. So it was very often, we think, taken at face value. And actually the Daily Mail subtly edited the kind of progress of this army marching towards London by diverting it to march through areas where they knew their circulation was very successful. So 
you know, and 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 this did influence government thinking mm-hmm. because the public were terrified. And there's a point at which everybody is told um, that they must beware of particularly Germans serving in restaurants who are likely to be German spies. And somebody gives the advice: if your waiter, what was it? If if your waiter uh, says he's Swiss. Check, uh, a demand to see his passport just to check he's no crowd. But it's that paranoia, um, it's that fake news. You know, there were a couple of German spies knocking around, but no way near as much as as uh, this uh, William Lequeux thought. It was this that, that helped give rise to the establishment of the British Secret uh, Service. So, yeah, it's a sort of funny... And the other thing we have to remember about the British Secret Service is that Diplomats, foreign attaches, who would be expected to do a bit of spying, regarded spying as ungentlemanly, not cricket. So they weren't really very good at it when they were when when they were forced to do it, and they made terrible mistakes. And we also have this these two spies who actually take as their kind of example of heroism a book called The Riddle of the Sands, which was evidently fiction, and kind of follow it as if it were a kind of spying instruction manual. So in the course of uncovering all these hidden stories from the Edwardian era, one aspect of Edwardian life that you look at that we probably haven't heard that much about is um, the experiences and the lives of black people in Edwardian Britain. Who were some of the now forgotten figures that you think we really should remember? Well, one of the things that's interesting about uh, Black Edwardians um, and the prevalence of people of African descent and origin uh, in in Britain is that they were they were prevalent in all walks of life, and they weren't merely just present. Uh, they weren't merely. Uh, uh, proof that Britain was not mono-ethnically white at the time. They were also actively contributing to the making and the building of Britain in all areas uh, of, of Edwardian life. I mean, the truth be told, there were so many different stories we could have looked into that we were we were spoiled for choice. But we look at, for example, the life of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, um, a, an amazing composer, black composer, um, who was really sort of on a par with Elgar, we also look at Walter Tull, uh, a, a professional footballer at the time. And they're merely just uh, examples of a broader network um, of Black Edwardians building, contributing uh, and developing um, a sense of uh, Britishness at the time. Uh, but also we uh, explore the role of Pan-Africanism at this time, uh, this idea that um people of African descent should get together to demand freedom and liberty from British, uh, particularly British colonial rule. And this all, d- all develops in England at the same time. So there was a lot going on. Um, and it's it's kind of amazing that we don't uh, recognise that in our history today. And we sort of, we, we, we forget the role um, of uh, people of African descent and origin in helping to build Great Britain. Because we also have their presence in culture as well. And that's very easy to forget, not just in the horrible culture of black minstrelsy, which everybody now shies away from in horror. But in this period, for example, we have the first black written, black performed musical theatre coming to Britain. It's a show called In Dahomey, and it's a satire on America's attempts to, quote, repatriate, quote, 
African-Americans. We also, and I just just briefly, and I won't reveal uh, the secret, but in exploring um, Black Edwardians, we do leap about 10,000 years previous into the Mesolithic era, uh, which, which has a bearing on the Edwardian era as well with regard to this theme. Well, speaking of leaping about, I'm just going to leap about again to another of your episodes, which looks at two characters which I'd never considered um, together before. So you look at Sigmund Freud, the psychoanalyst, and you also look at J.M. Barry, author of Peter Pan, but you choose to look at them together. Why do you, why do you make that connection? Somehow, some of the issues in Freudian thought surfaces in Peter Pan in an extraordinary way. Um, Peter Pan, the play, can easily be regarded as one long dream. Not only one long dream, but a dream within a dream. And this is at a time when dreams were going to be taken very, very seriously by scientists, particularly by Freud and later by Jung. Um, And there are other similarities as well. For example, this idea of uh, the secret life of children and child sexuality. Very, very Freudian, very, very to do with Peter Pan. And Peter Pan's and J.M. Barry's absolute um, crisis in their lives is their dealing with women and particularly with mother figures. And that coincides with Freud as well. And it gives us this idea of a zeitgeist, Mm. of a kind of movement of thought that people were tapping into in different ways, but in parallel. Another fascinating trend of this era was was the medicalisation of sex. So how was sex put under the microscope, as it were, by the Edwardians? The the, the Edwardians, or some of them, decided that sex had to be studied scientifically. And in a way, they were right. You know, they're the first era to look, to think, you know, sex is significant activity and it needs taking very seriously and science is the way to go. Unfortunately, a lot of them got the wrong end of the stick. In fact, a lot of them got the wrong end of a lot of sticks and they started to compulsively interview people about their sex lives, but it didn't actually help. Yeah, so, I mean... You've got what what we referred to as the sexologists who seek to to study sex, make sense of sex, and in so doing, place different sexual behaviours within the realm of of kind of nature. It happened. It wasn't necessarily uh, wayward or beyond the the realm of possibility or even immoral. Whipping, dressing as as women, um, fawning over statues, all these sort of kind of sexual... Um, kinks the Edwardians were fascinated by and they recorded them and they sought to make sense of them. What tended to happen though was sometimes they would take hardcore pornography 
Um, and I never thought I'd be reading and frankly watching as much filth as I as I did when researching this. But they took this like this stream of filth and studied it as if it was uh, science and as if, if it was scientific. Now, of course, the whole thing was was a fiction, but they took it into the realm of, of fact and tried to make sense of it. Um, and so you've got this melding of, you know, fact and fiction as they studied sex. So, you know, and there's lots of clumsiness and and actually some of it is quite difficult to read. I mean, they talk a lot about sexual experiences uh, of children um, and, you know, makes for uncomfortable reading sometimes. But all of that aside, there were some honourable attempts to make sense of human sexuality and to put it on the spectrum. And the great irony was that the, one of the fathers or the leaders of trying to make sense of sex was himself a virgin uh, for most of his life. Um, and we penetrate the secrets of his sex life too, which, uh, um, yes, we're a little... Uh, unhygienic. Unhygienic, yeah. Unhygienic. <laughs> no judgment. I just wanted to to throw the field wide open, really, and ask you what your own personal favourite characters or stories that you uncovered are. Mm. It's not a character. It's a kind of little fact. And that is related to flight. Don't forget that in 1903, powered flight starts. And... You don't have to do the maths, we've done it for you. If you're, say, seven or eight in 1903 and standing in that field at Kitty Hawk and then you project yourself forward into your 70s, not only could you have witnessed the first powered flight in that lifetime, at the end of that lifetime, you could have witnessed the landing on the moon. And that gives you a real sense of the trajectory of the 20th century and how, and, and, and how dense it is in terms of events and discoveries and so on and so forth. Imagine being, you know, in your mid-70s and watching this and saying, hey, I remember when flight started. Mm. All this business about history being one thing after another. It's always very difficult to get a bird's eye view of the continuum of history and that little fact i think helps you do it where i found most connection was when we were looking at destitute foreigners and we followed this story of this amazing woman who was forced to to, to flee to britain because of pogroms uh, in russia and we follow her story in Britain. And that had a real sort of personal resonance for me. And I did, indeed, I think Nick and, and Stephen as well, because my family also had uh, a similar experience. And so one of the things more broadly about the Edwardian era is how it speaks to us today. Um, and I really felt that uh, when exploring destitute foreigners. But, you know, more broadly, when it, whether it's questions about the lines between fiction um, and facts, truth and falsity, the rise of fake news, uh, empowerment, Black Lives Matter. You know, all of these things that we feel are very modern phenomenon, we confine them in the Edwardian age. And, and so that was kind of my favourite episode because it brought that to me on a very sort of personal level. And it was amazing. You know, we trace her family history up to the present day. Uh, and there's a number of family secrets there as well. So that was my favourite. I like Willie Clarkson, but I, I will be spoiling it a bit if I tell you who Willie Clarkson was and what he did. Um, and there's a whole theme towards the end 
of the series uh, in the late Edwardian period where there was a craze among all walks of life, so to speak, to do something to change a person. And I'm not going to say what it was, but it's quite extraordinary and utterly bizarre. And this craze took hold across the nation and everybody was doing it and it got people very, very confused. And it appears that at the centre of it was this mysterious, possibly gay, possibly, he's possibly an arsonist as well. It's a completely <laughs> bonkers story. What kind of image of the Edwardians do you hope that people will leave the series with? If they started the series with Afternoon Tea on the Lawn, where will they be at the end of it? That's a really good question. It's yeah. quite, quite difficult. I think, well... For a start, that these are three-dimensional characters, that these aren't. And they're characters who, and this relates to my previous comments about a bizarre craze, which I wasn't going to tell you about. They're, they're characters who change. People were willing, one way or another, to change. It was a dark period. It was a period of ignorance because they didn't know what was coming next. But it was a period that set the seeds for a lot of what happened in the 20th century, whether it's the rise of Nazism, the rise of um, speedy travel, the mass media, you know, the, ta the tabloid newspapers and, and Lord Rothermere really, really made a huge impact. Mm. Um, and it's a kind of era that you've probably forgotten about. That you you know you didn't know there used the, there used to be an advert for the TV Times which said I never knew there was so much in it. That's the same as the Edwardian <laughs> era. In my head, I still have the image of tea on the lawn and a nice sunlit afternoon. But the people who are having tea uh, are diverse, and you've got the suffragette with a ticking bomb behind her. You've got the German spy who's infiltrated Britain. You've got the Black Edwardian helping to make Great Britain great. You've got a fat king with his mistresses around him. You know, there's so much going on. It's such a diverse period. Um, and for me, it's just this kind of, this paradoxical age where strangeness and weirdness and optimism and hope exists with a pessimism and some fear um, and no one could have imagined how that would have unfolded with the death of around 10 million during the first world war um, but that's kind of where it was heading and no one knew and lots of people were having a good time disguised rollerblading having a good tea on the lawn um, it's a fun age as well as one that has this air of um, inevitability that was Nick Baker and John Wolfe, the writers of Stephen Fry's Edwardian Secrets, which is available now on Audible. If you'd like to read more on the Edwardian era, there's plenty to find on our website, including an article on what it was really like to be an Edwardian servant. Just search for Downstairs in Downton at historyextra.com to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on everything you wanted to know about Pompeii.